Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So Luke 1, 46 to 55, entitled Mary's Song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And so nestled within the Christmas story and in this song of Mary, there are a series of presumptions that I want to draw out. And actually they're things that have come to order our own lives. And we may not notice how strange they are. And of course the overwhelming and most obvious accent of the entire Christmas story concerns the notion of who and what is important. Historically, we have no record of peasant life, poor life, certainly no record of a teenage girl life 2,000 years ago, or carpenter life. And here in Mary's song, humility is clearly no barrier to being important. And this is really made obvious throughout the birth story of Jesus. Mary describes pride not simply as an outward, but as an uh, an inward thing that occurs in our inmost thoughts. And what is occurring through Mary, she recognizes, is a permanent overturning of what is considered most important. He has brought down rulers and their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. It is kings and warriors who live lives worth recording throughout most all history. And even here, in those records that we have, the accent falls upon their heroic deeds. It really doesn't tell us, as Mary's song does, about one's inward thoughts or inward dialogue. Maybe one of the earliest records, you know, you'll go back to ancient Persia. There's King Darius. We know that Darius I, he dethroned Bardia. There's no record of his guilty conscience or his struggling with that or the fact that he had fabricated a story to become king. Being important was always a function of hierarchy. And if you were at the top of the hierarchy, you got to make the rules. And those at the top were accorded all of the attention historically and all of the meaning and value. And so public deeds of valor or heroism, they were not only 
the important thing, in a sense, if we look at history, they're the only thing of enduring meaning that is recorded. I'm going to qualify that, recorded outside of Scripture. In the birth story of Jesus, this is reversed. As God visits a teenage girl in a country town, maybe the Moberly of Israel, Nazareth. It's in a backwater region, kind of like Missouri, Galilee. It's of a people that have no political importance on the world stage. And we know as readers that there is no more important event in world history than the birth of Christ. And by extension, there is no more important event and no more you know, heavier weight of meaning than the things, the events that are falling on this teenage girl. We think she was probably still in her teens. Maybe she would be considered by most peoples a kind of non-person. She says, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here is an echo of the passage in the Old Testament when God visited Sarah. It says that in the passage, the Lord singled out Sarah. Very similar language here concerning Mary. The King James says he visited her. Some say he remembered her. That's the word that we have here. He was gracious to her. He was attentive or he took account of. I think what's being said of Sarah is being echoed here about Mary. Some even say there's a kind of numerical or administrative understanding that he took account of her. You know, that's what's happening. Mary and Joseph are going to be counted. And God is saying to Mary, oh, I'm counting too. And in the census that I'm taking, Mary, you're counted first. So importance is reversed. And Mary recognizes it. Her song recognizes it. In addition, something strange and subtle is happening as we focus on Mary. Even her thought life is opened to us. We're clued in to her reactions, to the circumstance which is revealed to her. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We enter into Mary's inner dialogue with herself. She says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. And this actually, when the angel first appears to Mary and tells her of God's plan that she would bear a Messiah, bear the Savior, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The drama takes an inward turn. We are so used to this in modern literature, in modern understanding, we may miss how strange it is in ancient literature. If you go back to biographical records, you know, you go back to Egyptian monuments, uh, cuneiform inscriptions in Assyria, maybe 1300 BC, there's nothing like this. You know, there's no slave, the, the slave Asclepius, Oh, he wondered about 
the futility of life. Do this, do that, run here, run there. He wondered what it all means. There's no such inscription. There is no record of the internal life of an ordinary person. And what we have in the biographies, even if they're biographies, are just commemorations of the deeds of the kings. And I mean for thousands and thousands of years, what we know about history is this king did that, that king did that, and it really doesn't even tell us about the inward life of the kings themselves. It just tells about the men, and it's almost always men, and their deeds. That is, people, for the most part, in their fullness, we, we have no record of them. Maybe among the earliest surviving biographical literature is on illustrious men. It's by Cornelius Nepos. It's in actually right before the birth of Christ. This is about 25 BC. And it would become a model for biography. So it's not too far removed from the life of Christ and from the literature that we're encountering in the Bible. But it's completely absent. The literary technique, this inner dialogue, this understanding of a person's emotions, the development of personality. It's absent in any place other than Scripture. Plutarch, this is actually after Christ. Some would say he's the great biographer. And he is unusual and he does talk about the morality of the people that he's telling us about. But there is still no record of their internal thought life. And that's what's shocking here in Scripture. The question is whether the technique and the sense of agency, you know, human agency, are actually being changed up before our eyes in Scripture, and particularly in the birth narratives. There is a significance attached to human agency, human choice. You know, it's set there before Mary, as she is presented with God's plan. I think it's incomparable, even in biblical literature. Maybe, you know, the scenes in which God is persuading Moses to go to Egypt, or the opening episodes in Genesis, even. But Mary's decision is concerned with the redemption of the world. She is quite literally the means by which God is going to be incarnate in the Christ. And so as never before, there is a focus on human agency, on her as a person. History is turning on the thought life of a teenage girl. Think of it that way. The text does not indicate that her consent was required, but it's implied that it was. It presumes that her approval and obedience to God's plan is one that she's expected to offer up. In Luke 1.38, Mary answers, May your word to me be fulfilled. That is, she says, okay, God, here's your plan. All right, I agree to it. The story seems to require her consent, her willing acquiescence. And of course, that's much more than ancient societies ever 
granted to a teenage girl. I told Joelle what I was going to preach on. And she said, oh, well, maybe there were many Marys. But the other one said no. But in Mary's song, we realize there is not simply consent, but there's a kind of an expansiveness of spirit. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so it's not simply that there is an undeveloped literary technique that it's not there outside of scripture or you know is it like painting that there's just two-dimensional figures until modern painting develops I think it's more than that what is unfolding around Mary is both a unique technique and a unique sensibility Robert Alter who spent his life as a literary specialist he came late to the scriptures and he suggests that these techniques can be partially traced out in the Hebrew scriptures as well. And he was surprised as a literary specialist. You know, he studied Virginia Woolf or Faulkner, in which you would have page after page of interior monologue. And then he turned to scripture, and from the very first pages of Genesis, you have this interior monologue. He points to the example of Saul, in the Old Testament, in Samuel 18:17, It says this, Saul had thought, let not my hand be against him. You know, he's planning to kill David. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. What he's saying is, oh, I'm, I'm going to set David up to get murdered, but I'm going to do it through other people. And that's all in his thinking. Instead of the characters being kind of marionettes pulled by the web of expectation and of culture, much like we find in Homer, which Alter uh, compares it to, to Homer, there is an exposure of human interiority. We're told about Michael, Saul's daughter, that she loved David intensely. And by the way, it's the only woman in the Bible that that's said about the people loved David and were given detailed descriptions of people's thought life. You know, just think of Saul. He's a dangerously transparent individual. His jealousies of David. He's overcome with this jealousy. And there is a consistent element, I think, that it begins to unfold here also in the story of Joseph and Mary. As long as people are following the rules and doing what is expected. They're just byproducts of their culture. David, too, remains largely opaque. We really don't know David. We don't know about his thought life until his life begins to fall apart. And we're led in his lust after Bathsheba. He gets Bathsheba pregnant. He plots to murder Uriah. And David's life and his family's life fall apart. And we're let in on the lusts, the murderous plots, the failed expectations of David, his children, and even of his general Joab, the field commander of his army. His adultery seems to unleash a series of dark tragedies. Immediately after David and Bathsheba are married, 
Amnon, his son, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And then her brother Absalom murders Amnon. Absalom flees and returns to court. You know, David loves Absalom. That's what it keeps saying. But Absalom comes back and usurps the throne. And then Joab enters in. And Joab, of course, is the cold pragmatist. He has Absalom killed. And throughout all of this, the strangeness of David's reactions are notable. They're a deep insight into the person David. Because he doesn't do what he's expected to do. He never stops loving Absalom, his son. The son who's betrayed him. The son who's murdered his brother. He refuses to give up on Absalom until Joab forces his hand. David mourns inappropriately. You remember the first baby that Bathsheba had? Before the baby dies, David is weeping and pleading with God that the baby would live. And then the baby dies, and David gets up and washes his face. That's not the way you do mourning in the ancient world. And the people in the court comment on it. He loves excessively. He's an embarrassment to his wife. You remember David dancing in his underwear? And his wife, she's just totally ashamed of him. And like most of the characters of the Bible, and unlike the characters in the surrounding literature, he is deeply flawed, he's profoundly contradictory, and he is a complexly realized individual. And the question that this evokes is, how is this full development of personality in the Old Testament culminating in the New Testament, how is that even pertinent to the Christian religion as it's presently practiced? In the short sketches we have of Joseph, the one significant bit of information, it tells us he is of the line of David. I think perhaps that's a hint as to how we're to read the story. We might imagine, oh, here is somebody who is the opposite of David. But there is a similar opening of the personality of Joseph in contrast to the expectations of the culture. But with David, of course, it was a failure of personality. With Joseph, there is an opposite course that is being traced. And really, this is the bulk of the Christmas story. It's about God getting the human agents to not do what their culture expects them to do. Joseph doesn't need anybody to tell him what he should do when his fiance turns up pregnant. He knows what he has to do. He doesn't even consider whether he will go ahead with the marriage. Because the dictates of the society, even the dictates of the Jewish law are clear. And Matthew informs us that Joseph was faithful to the law. And so Joseph is going to divorce her. That's what he's required to do. He is willing to, maybe it's a kind of bending of the law. He will silently end his engagement, really end their marriage. And yet he's not willing to marry her. And we have indications, you know, he was a kind soul. He was very thoughtful of Mary and her reputation. 
But his choice, is really his only choice, was to halt the marriage. And it would not have occurred to him, apart from the voice of God, to enter into an illegal marriage. Because that's what's being asked of him. God wanted him to marry illegally. Because Joseph, her husband, Matthew tells us, was faithful to the law. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And he had in mind then to divorce her quietly. This challenge of law and cultural expectation, it really frames the story of Christ, right? It begins through his parents' illegal marriage. It culminates in his law-defying death at the hands of the law courts of Rome and Israel. And it ends with the breaking of the seal on the tomb in which was inscribed, Do not open. And he broke the law by being raised and moving the stone. And so with Christmas and Christ, we are stepping outside of a rule-governed cosmos in which persons are simply an extension of their culture, an extension of the cosmic order as people conceived of it. Matthew tells us even about what Joseph has in mind or what his internal dialogue and intention are. And in turn, the concern of God, you know, his angel, is with what Joseph plans to do, but not just what he's going to do, even with his attitude. This is Matthew 1.20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so we enter into Joseph's internal thought life, what he had in mind, his consideration. And this, of course, is exposed in sharp contrast to God's intention expressed to Joseph in a dream. It's much like Jesus' own challenge to the law. You know, Joseph's kindness, his love for Mary, his humanity. They're revealed to us not because he fits the pattern that's expected of him, but because he doesn't. He's like his forebear David. He defies expectations only in a good direction. Both Joseph and Mary are disclosed to us internally and in the fullness of their personhood, not because they're exemplars of their culture, but because they are God's human agents involved in overturning cultural expectations. Now, we have a problem with this literary personal focus. It really doesn't fit with the way we normally read the Bible or with our expectations of how the Bible functions in our faith. Think of David. He's no spiritual example. And it's hard to imagine how he prefigures Christ. Maybe just in the vaguest sense, as a king who was promised an eternal reign. This does not explain the need for the fullness of the story, of his story, and all of the stories. Most all of the stories in the Hebrew Bible. But the same problem is going to repeat itself with the life of Christ. We don't know what to do with the life of Christ. Why this fullness of life? 
especially where the doctrine and the propositions become primary rather than the person. There's no real need for the full story of the life of Christ if he's just a sacrifice. And what gets passed over in this focus on doctrine, on propositions, is the peculiar literary art and with it the full development of embodied personhood. I think literally the rise of human agency to a central level of importance. In Robert Alter's description, you know, what is the Hebrew gift to the world? It's not their material culture, it's not their archaeology, it's not their great ceramics or jewelry or painting. It's the literary art that we have in the Old and New Testament and in the development of what it means to be fully human. He maintains, quote, the ancient Hebrew writers altogether eclipsed their neighbors, producing powerful narratives that were formally brilliant and technical, innovative, and poetry that rivaled any poetry composed in the Mediterranean world. He doesn't know why, but what is strange, the purveyors of the religion, Christians and Jews both, really have never noticed this depth of personhood, this overwhelming fact about the unique nature of the Old and New Testament. It's the one element that we really don't account for, and yet is the central thing about the Bible. The thing, I think, that links Christ to Joseph and David and to the peculiar nature of the Hebrew Scriptures. And apart from which I think we just have the vaguest notion of what's happening in the Bible, is the full-blooded nature of a shared humanity. These are real people that we encounter. It's not just that there is a deep literary portrayal of an already present humanity, but the Bible unleashes a new literature, but also a new form of human sensibility. The Bible is not a part, nor a part, simply, of the Western tradition, its new sense of humanity. This is Eric Auerbach. He says it's a generative force within it. He says that it is not Homer, but the Bible that is the precursor of the representation and of problematic quotidian reality that passes through Dante and Shakespeare to culminate in the realist novel of the 19th and 20th century. Add to this insight the insight of the modern sociologist philosopher Charles Taylor. He traces out the sources of modern sense of selfhood and he depicts it as unfolding from the peculiar sensibility of the Old and New Testament. Maybe in the words of Mary in regard to the work of Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The revealing of what was formerly concealed, it unleashes a new sense of freedom and equality. All have free access to Christ, but a new sense of what it means to be human as human choice and human agency take on added depth and meaning. And maybe this new sensibility, it does have immediate positive benefits. 
maybe we recognize it most clearly just in negative possibilities. It's not all good. I mean, it's doubtful that the ancients struggled with the existential questions that I think are a byproduct of freedom and egalitarianism, which Taylor links to the Judeo-Christian heritage. Taylor suggests that the notion that we are deep individuals with hidden wellsprings of feeling and perhaps of talent, he says it's a late development occurring toward the end of the 18th century. Certainly in the typical traditional society, meaning and value, they're simply a byproduct of the culture. What's meaningful is what the culture tells you is meaningful. And it's a part of the tightly woven web in which it would not have occurred to someone to chart a different course. And as a result, in the modern period, we have all sorts of identity crises. You know, as we realize, oh, my choice is of great significance. Uh, as a boy, I don't know, I may have been a strange child, but I, I very much enjoyed reading about Native Americans. I especially like stories about the Apaches and about Cochise. I just can't imagine one of Cochise's warriors saying, you know, Chief, I'm not really feeling the whole raiding and macho warrior scene today. I think I'm going to sit back and stay at my teepee while you guys go and raid. Maybe I'll play my flute and reconsider my options in life. It can't happen. There were official constraints on people. The thought would have, have occurred. Now, as I say this, you, if you're deeply familiar with Native Americans, you'll know there were clowns and there were contraries. People who literally walked backward. They did everything backward. But it was a tightly woven, rule-oriented kind of rebellion. And so what's happening? You know, the weight of searching out one's true identity, living an authentic life that we have in modern society. It's an inward reality that seems to require a different order of humanity. And that's what I'm saying is developing before our eyes in the story of the birth of Jesus. It's not simply a literary device, but what unfolds from the biblical understanding is a new concept of personhood. A new focus on the importance of human interiority, on human choice. And it will have ramifications both great and small and good and evil, which constitute our present reality. This was brought to my attention first in Japan. There is the modern novel in Japan, and it's called the I novel, because that had never occurred to Japanese to talk about I, and to talk about interior dialogue until the Meiji Restoration. There are novels, you know, the tales of Genji, but the Shishosetsu, the I novel, is linked to the advent of Christianity in Japan. And this was not necessarily a good thing. The most dangerous profession in Japan is a novelist. Most all of these early novelists commit suicide. It unleashes certainly a great sense of freedom, but also a great sense of responsibility. And the searching out of one's true identity, you know, that becomes a kind of weight 
that's potentially harmful. And so it's in the modern period. This is Clifford Gertz. He tells us that we all begin in the modern period with capacities to live a thousand kinds of life. That had never occurred to people before. It can be taken as a great opportunity or a great crisis. Choice of career, choice of spouse, choice of identity. They are open and endless possibilities. The philosopher Elizabeth Anderson notes that people now have the freedom to have cross-cutting identities in which she describes it as a kind of freedom. You know, at church we can be one kind of person. At work we can be something else, a different identity. At home or with friends we can have a different identity. And the ability not to have an identity that one just carries from sphere to sphere is a kind of new thing. And at the same time, the cataclysmic and utopian possibilities of human choice are laid bare before our eyes. We now recognize that some obscure individual in Wuhan, China, decided to have pangolin steaks or bat wing such that his dinner choice would unleash a global pandemic. What might have once been assigned to the gods or karma, we now recognize is a product of poor human choice. Think of the life of Adolf Hitler. Oh, we now recognize, what if he had been just a little more successful as a painter? Maybe he would have spent his life mixing watercolors rather than mixing up humanity. Or even in World War I, Gravilo Princip shoots Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That actually is the advent of World War I and World War II. And we can imagine, oh, what if he had died just a few years earlier of the tuberculosis that would eventually take his life? What I'm saying is we recognize that human choice is of huge consequence. Mary recognizes her choice. Joseph recognizes his choice. And on the positive side, we now recognize that what was once thought to be a kind of cosmic order or a natural state, it's the product of humans. Freedom is a possibility which can, it can be manipulated, it can be controlled. But this does not mean tragedy or futility are necessarily easier to take. And this is right after this. Simeon tells Mary in his own song, a sword will pierce your own soul too. The depth of human suffering, maybe it's only aggravated in recognition that most of it can be laid at the feet of human cruelty. At the same time, the reality of a salvation focused on revealing the full depth and the full possibility of human personhood, it can be seen as holding out the realization of a different world. What God has done in Christ is nothing short of opening up the full potential of personhood. It's not simply that previously people had choices or an interior life that was unavailable, but I believe Christ has opened all of humanity to a personhood at the same time that he is modeled. That his personhood is the sort of freedom that saves us 
we are called to behold the true subject, the true person of God, opened up to us in Christ. Here is our singular task that Mary describes in her own interior life. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.